Today is the feast of the Holy Family of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. It's fitting then that I start off with a quote about families. The family is the greatest stumbling block to the perfection of society. Now, who would say such an odd thing? The answer is me. I said it. (laughs) But of course, I mean it ironically. Because if you look back throughout history, there were many thinkers and ideologues who had a vision of the perfect society. There were communists and socialists who believed that society could become radically egalitarian in the distribution and control of property. There were eugenicists and fascist movements like the Nazis who believed that society could be made fitter by the elimination of genetically weaker persons and other social undesirables. There are radical feminists who believe that male and female are merely social constructs, and they want an androgynous society in which sexual difference is minimized or eliminated. And there are, of course, libertarians and individualists and extreme capitalists, such as the devotees of Ayn Rand, who believe that the goal of life is the acquisition of wealth and maximum personal satisfaction. But in order to transform societies to line up with any of these ideologies, one must first transform people. In order to introduce radical politics, people have to be radicalized in their persons and be made to accept the values and disvalues that such a political system imposes. And the problem for any of these sorts of radical ideologies is that they require, whether explicitly or implicitly, that people be less attached to or less integrated into a family in order to devote themselves to the goods or values that these ideologies recognize. They bump up against the problem that, one way or another, devotion to these ideologies means ignoring or downplaying some good that is intrinsic to the flourishing of families. Most people are sane enough to reject anything that would lead them to compromise the family to that degree, that would require them to reject their natural instincts regarding the importance of marriage and children. Yet the danger of each of these ideologies that I've mentioned, even if they are not accepted in full because they are too extreme, is that certain attitudes and mindsets inherent in them do infect large sectors of our society. They accomplish the result of undermining the integrity and importance of the family, little by little perhaps, rather than in one fell swoop. So we have to confront some sad realities about the state of the family in our society today. Almost half of all children in this country are born out of wedlock. Marriage rates continue to drop for each generation. Our birth rate is half of what it was in the 1960s, and it is now below replacement levels for our population. 40 to 50% of marriages will end in divorce. An unmarried cohabitation has increased 17-fold, not 17%, 17-fold since 1960. Now, there are many causes for each of these problems, and we should reject simplistic solutions. 
But we must also reject first and foremost that any of this is normal or natural or good. Which is what some forces in our society would like us to think. Many in our political class are content with the idea of treating the symptoms of family breakdown rather than the cause. But no government program, no political plan, no matter how well-intentioned, can replace a family. Further, many of these programs subsidize things that undermine families in the first place. It's ironic that in our society, the Catholic Church, whose visible leaders are mainly celibate men and women, is the voice that articulates most clearly the problem in the way that our modern society treats the family. But that's because the church takes her cues from the Lord. We see in today's first reading, God sets a father in honor over his children, a mother's authority over her sons, he confirms. It's interesting that at the time the Bible was written, when women had little legal or social authority, that God would specifically confirm the authority of mothers in the family. God is telling us by this that the structure of the family is not a conventional arrangement. Rather, the union of a man and woman and the resulting institution of the family is the fundamental form of human community. That's why in the Ten Commandments, the fourth command is, Honor thy mother and father. But this is not simply a nicety. It is allied to the very purpose that God gives for the Ten Commandments themselves, to free Israel from slavery. That's why the fourth commandment in full reads, Honor your mother and father, that your days may be long in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Neither Israel nor any other nation will remain free when the society does not recognize the importance of the family as the bedrock institution of society and nurture it accordingly. As the compendium of the social doctrine of the church teaches, a society built on a family scale is the best guarantee against drifting off course into either individualism or collectivism. Because within the family, the person is always at the center of attention, as an end and never as a means. The reason why this is the case is because the experience of family humanizes us. In a family, each person is recognized as having their own underived dignity. Yet that dignity is folded into a network of self-giving relationships. The love of the family is truly having your cake and eating it too. That is why the Catechism tells us the family is the original cell of social life. It is the natural society in which husband and wife are called to give themselves in love and in the gift of life. Authority, stability, and a life of relationships within the family constitute the foundations for freedom, security, and fraternity within society. Or as the compendium further says, the family is a divine institution that stands at the very foundation of the life of the human person and as the prototype of every social order. At best, other social institutions, even the church herself, can only approximate this kind of intimate love and self-giving.
And they can't even do that unless the persons they receive have been formed in a genuine experience of family life. That's why every government or social institution, and yes, again, even the church, must be measured by how it works to support and nurture the family. That's why even our Lord, miraculously conceived as he was, was born into the midst of a family, even despite his lack of a biological father. Jesus Christ accepted the status accorded to him by his foster father, Joseph. Because of Joseph, he was known as the carpenter's son. That even descent from the line of David was accorded to him because of Joseph, despite the lack of paternity in the biological sense. Because in the economy of God's plan, Joseph's role as foster father and guardian of the holy family carried with it the right to bestow this blessing upon Christ. Christ's experience of the holy family makes family life itself a sign of the new covenant. Christ graciously received Mary's motherhood and Joseph's fatherhood, despite the fact that he was their creator and redeemer as well, despite the fact that neither of them were divine, and that Joseph, unlike Mary, probably committed a few sins here and there. God became man in order to save us. He was born as a child, needing parents and the life of the family, just as we all have and we all do, to show us the way. Even Jesus needed Mary and Joseph to bring him to the temple to fulfill the law of the Lord. And this family was the way. And we can see that even without Jesus speaking a word, he was only an infant, but Simeon was converted. We can infer that it was the experience of the Holy Family in Toto which caused Simeon to recognize Christ for who he was. The image of our Savior flanked by his pious mother and father was a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of the people Israel. Because the family is the very image of the Trinity, the very thing that Christ fundamentally came to reveal. Three persons totally united in love and self-giving. That is why we call the family the domestic church. It is why the Catholic Church is founded upon the communion of families. The family was or is for each of us the original school of love. And the experience of the family illuminates our relationships to the world, even our relationship to God, for better or for worse. Now, we have talked a lot about the beauty and dignity of family life. And probably some of you are thinking, that's great, but you haven't met my family. No one said that family life is easy. Especially today, as I have mentioned, there are great pressures in society working against the formation of a healthy and happy family life. But that's why families must even more so strive to be holy, to nurture love in their midst and keep out the wayward influences of the world, just as the Holy Family did. St. Paul teaches us the way. Put on as God's chosen ones heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience bearing with one another and forgiving one another if one has a grievance against another. 
As the Lord has forgiven you, so must you also do. And over all these put love, that is the bond of perfection. That is the playbook for a happy family. And that is the great secret of the holy family itself, love. It is also the secret for our families, the same now as it has ever been, simple even yet as it is challenging. Love one another.